0: Oh, look at that! Rocking the AirPods. <laughs>
1: well, now I have them. <laughs> are you Are you recording everything? Yeah, oh, everything's you got new recording. ones. Yeah, I got new ones. Yeah.
0: You basically spent like thousands of dollars at the Apple Store and got nothing new. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't want. I don't want to think about it. About <laughs> it's been unlucky, unlucky Apple month here, but uh, <laughs> it'll be okay. A couple months, actually. It's worth it though. Uh, the, I, I called the, the hotel in New Orleans and see if they found anything in my. It's got to be my um my room, but I haven't heard back yet, so I'm not I'm not holding my they, breath. There's zero chance. No, <laughs> I say that a lot. I think, well, I think
0: uh, hotel staff is extremely extremely nice about that. I don't think yeah. they, they steal stuff. I, I think a I, uh, I guest though they get yeah. the room
1: after you might yeah. All right, welcome back to Frontend First. Uh, this uh, is a podcast about web development, mostly focused on the front end. But who knows? One of these days, we'll have an episode on database indexes. We'll ha- we'll have to wait and see. We'll never have an episode on database indexes. Is it indexes or indices? See, that's that tells you oh, everything God. you need it to know about how much I on. love backend from development. <laughs> My name's Sam. I'm Ryan, and um, today we're going to be talking about. Uh, The headless UI doc site that we built, uh, I guess at this point, what, two months ago? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Early April.
1: Nice. Um, Hide self view. Again, hot tip. The old hot zoom tip. And um, yeah, and then we have some uh, some hot tweets that we're going to talk about at the end. But, uh, let's get right into it, man. We got to work with, uh, Adam Wathan and Steve Sugar and everyone else at the Tailwind Labs team and, um, to build out, uh, one of our favorite types of projects, which is a doc site. It feels like over the years we've built a lot of those. Um, but this was a really interesting project for a few reasons. So that's kind of what we want to talk about today. Um, even though it was a doc site for like an open source project, it was run like, a client project right um i mean i mean of course like we were we were hired
0: to build the website you know
1: right but like a lot of times with these kinds of things they're not really uh you know scoped out they're not i uh, don't have features that are prioritized and things that are deprioritized and cut because of um wanting to ship on a deadline um there's a lot of times not a professional designer who's built out the screens for all breakpoints um so it was fun because it's just a, you know serving developers is always fun because we're developers and we we like that but also being given the space and time to kind of do it correctly was uh yeah it was a really rewarding project and you know compared to some other um stuff we worked on in the past uh you know they're a small team they're good at shipping and so it felt good to just have it done basically in like two and a half weeks i think uh from start to finish um so yeah we just wanted to talk about that yeah that's that's actually a a really good point like we had
0: we had a deadline imposed by them uh and it was really good just really good to have a deadline Um, yeah even though it was like in a you know it was self-imposed um was right. it self-imposed? I don't know. But it was self-imposed
1: just, it was, by then. It wasn't external. There was no conference coming up that they didn't control. You know, exactly. Exactly. And which was awesome because it actually got us to quickly dis- discuss scope, cut stuff, prioritize,
0: right. you know, all the things you just said. Right. But that, that was that was really good. I think a lot of teams, especially if you're in charge, you might say like, well, we can push it back a week. Um, and there were a million times where Adam could have said that, but he didn't. Right. Um, I mean, the dude had a baby during the Right. <laughs> <laughs> and even that didn't change the, the deadline. Exactly. So, yeah. and it was really, I mean, it was really, really good. It was good yeah. to just target something, prioritize, and, and be done and proud when we were
1: done. Yeah. I think that's worth uh, talking about just a little bit more in case there are folks out there who haven't worked this way. You know, you and I met working at a conference company. So um, when you're working on something like that where you have a date that everyone's flying to Vancouver for, That is a natural deadline that will impose these, uh, this discipline on the team and you're forced to make those decisions. And it can be really uncomfortable at times because everyone wants to do their best work. And I think a lot of us in tech can be perfectionists and that can, you know, slow you down. It can stop you from shipping, but there's definitely a tension there. But the deadlines, you know, if you follow kind of the, the, I think the Basecamp methodology of shape up has been the latest version that's kind of crystallized this thinking about software. You either kind of have like this deadline with flexible scope or fixed scope with flexible deadline. But um, even if you think about how Apple does it, like Apple has events every whatever, uh, three times a year. And if something's not ready, even if they advertise it like that charging pad thing, you know, they don't ship it. So that's an example of cutting scope and sticking to the deadline. That's kind of what the base camp folks talked about in that book. That's what Adam and the team do. That's what a lot of people we we know working kind of in this area do. And yeah, there's a. It's just an interesting way to think about it because I think, again, like you said, we've worked with places with a fixed deadline. We work with places that have slipped. I mean, I think most developers have worked on projects or teams where you think something's going to be done by June of whatever. And then a year later you're still working on it, six months later you're still working on it, and everyone's like, Why is software so hard to estimate? And why do we always go over time and over budget? And this is kind of one way to to push against that. So how do you I I remember you having an interesting kind of um insight, like or just a um reaction like either after the beginning of the project or sometime through where you were just kind of like, it wasn't really uncomfortable. Did you feel like that?
0: Oh, yeah, no, not at
1: all. Um, sorry, not, I did not feel uncomfortable at all um, with like being restricted and having to cut things.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there were a few times we spiked on features like interactive demos. And, you know, I may have spent like a day or half a day coding it and, and building out a few and then just being like, these don't look good. Um, they were we don't cr- have enough time we don't have enough time to like fully design these and build these all out given that there's only, you know, two weeks left. And so it was just like, we're going to cut this. And that's honestly, that's so much better than working on it for like five more days. And then being like, Hey guys, um, these actually don't
1: look that great. And then like either feeling the pressure of staying up super late to finish it because you want to deliver on a promise, um, which is easy to do or having all that sunk cost. And, uh, throwing away even more work
0: also too, just to kind of echo something what you said i think some of some teams that i've been a part of uh when deadlines were chosen they were more just like optimistic feel good dates that no one including the developers just no one on the team really put a lot of thought into just like oh we want to have this stuff done by q3 of next year and it's just like what like okay sure um and then, you know, it rolls up next year rolls around. And like you said, you're still working on it. So just, yeah, just having like, this is going to be done in two weeks or three weeks. It's it's awesome. it's, it's Right. Everyone gets to think about it. It's top of mind. Um,
1: yeah. It really forces you to prioritize. Forces you to prioritize. Forces you to take on a chunk of work that is actually feasible. You knew, the whole team knew we could ship a doc site in that amount of time. Even if it was just what was the API docs that were on the GitHub README into a website form, right? Mm-hmm. Um and then we had stretch goals, like you know, uh the demos, uh like the hero demos, which we got, the interactive demos for each code example, which we didn't get, a version selector, which we didn't do. Um, you know, the the, the grid lines with the gradients, which we did do. So there were all those different things where you can kind of bail out at any time, but you can still ship truly a MVP that satisfies like the project goals. Um but yeah, it does take someone, you know, uh uh who's good about committing to that and willing to drop the scope hammer and willing to say no to things. I mean there's a lot yeah. you had to say no to and you have to be okay with that. But I think it gets better with practice and I think saying it up front with everyone is, is good too. So yeah, it was just a, it was a good example of it and uh I think there was a few, I mean, I, I, I remember at the beginning, I want, I did want to keep going with the interactive examples for each code sample, but it was absolutely the right decision not to do that because there was plenty of work else to do. And, um, it turned out to be, um, yeah, the right move. We got to spend more time making the code samples look better and the highlighting and all those little design details that Steve put into it. And so I think it looked a lot better and ended up much better, you know? And then again, like always, once you ship it and people start using it, You know, they still haven't done that, which means there's all the other stuff that's way more important because people start using it and they say, Oh, how do I do this? Oh, there's a missing example here. Oh, this is out of date. And now you're working on the stuff that your users really care about instead of what you thought was most important before you shipped it. Yeah. Yep. Which is also just such an important point and, and part of the reason why it's so good to ship Mm -hmm. earlier and often and get feedback from, you know, the, uh, the actual users of whatever you're building. So yeah. Um, Sorry, that's I I like having a delayed reaction to
0: that. I was just working with someone that was pulling code off the Tailwind doc site. And I remember when we were building it, there was like an API that we were arguing about, whether how to word it, how to include it in the docs. And um, watching him copy and paste the code off the doc site, put it in a component and how it ended up in a PR and what everything was named. I was like, wow, that this like. This would have been really helpful for like when we were discussing how to do these docs. So that's just like, yeah, just seeing someone else use a website is so much. It's just one of the most important things. So like great point about a deadline is you have a date that you can work towards to get to that to get right. to real users. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. Cause again, like you're, you could have. You know, all six of us in a room, sitting there talking forever about what's the most important. As soon as everyone, wa- everyone's going to agree. As soon as they see someone go through that process, they're going to say, "Oh wait, we were, we, were, you know, none of this matters anymore. We're gonna, we need to work on this other thing." Um, hopefully it wasn't too embarrassing. when You thought that was, it was okay. No, no, it wasn't at all. But I was okay. like, oh, "Wow, this is exactly yeah. what
0: I remember from building the dock site and yeah. just seeing it." how it ended up from the doc site to in a real world code base um was just no you're like, absolutely oh,
1: right because dude the, the day it was launched we that, that person put out that youtube video remember where they went through and built yep. a switch and they put it out like within an hour of using it but they having no context at all of anything that we were doing we've been thinking about this stuff forever we understood why it was headless and why you have to do work to make it styled so it does all the things that are the details about it he actually i was watching him have kind of a hard time getting it to do what he wanted to do did quite some things didn't quite make sense i was like man if i had seen this maybe i would have written this a little bit differently maybe i've had a different example that would have been easier so it just goes back to the point right yeah you would have added a section that was like how to make a youtube tutorial (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) here's how to make it look incredibly easy (laughs) um no that's a really really interesting point do you actually do you want to explain like what is headless ui and what what the goals of this project were Absolutely, because, you know, this just happened to be a project we worked on, but it's also relevant, I think, to anyone listening to this if you haven't, um, if you haven't used it yet, because, um, if you're a front end developer, I think it's a great library. So it just like we have inputs in the browser that let you enter text. Um, but with some, some tweaking, you can use CSS to style them to fit any look and feel of your app. That's great, right? Well, when it comes to things like select boxes, we don't have that. So the select box has this native UI. Um, and sometimes uh, people want to make it look like their app. They can't. So they end up doing all this work to make it uh, something that looks like a select. But it's really hard to do that because there's a lot of functionality built into the native inputs. And then there's uh, inputs that don't even exist natively in the browser. Things like modal dialog. So uh, Headless UI is an attempt to build uh, these uh, components and expose them as react and, and, and view components uh, in a way that lets you act as if the the browser did provide you a modal component uh, a drop down component a list box component but they're completely unopinionated about the styling they just provide you with the functionality and the accessibility pieces and then you get to go to town to style it to match your app so um turns out there's a lot of accessibility requirements with things like this um uh, To make sure things work if you're tabbing through a form. To make sure things work if you're using a screen reader. Um, Arrow keys on tabs. Things like that. Arrow keys to navigate list items in a drop down. Focus control on a modal and locking the scroll on the body in the background. Focus trapping. All of those things that come and are expected. And the things that make your app feel broken if you do them wrong. That's the point of this library, basically, and uh, the APIs are designed with uh, styling them yourself using Tailwind in mind. Um, but they are actually uh, able to be styled with any styling technique. So that's where the headless part comes from. Yeah, Tailwind UI, which is their their
0: product that they they sell, uh, has a bunch of pre built components, and a lot of them are you know higher fidelity um, modals and alerts, pre styled pre-styled and so because it's something like a modal it it needs a little more than just html right it needs javascript to you know events to open and close it and so headless ui is a way
1: yeah headless ui is a way for them to basically give you the fully designed um pieces that are intel and ui that rely on more than just html and css that's really actually that's a good point because that's the motivation for it originally is like making sure we can offer in Tailwind UI things like notifications or you know uh, confirmation dialogues that are styled really nicely but that you have control over how and when they open and close all the programmatic access and so instead of building them into Tailwind UI the product they build the lower layer expose it in this open source library that anyone can use for free and then build on top of that in their product so it's a it's like it reminds me of um and back in our kind of when we were working with Ember, the rationalizing the primitives uh, keynote that that Yehuda gave one year where he was talking about how um, Ember was like this higher level stuff built on top of the rendering engine. And then I think they were working on Glimmer at the time and they said we need to rationalize the, the primitive layer. And then the higher level stuff is what a lot of people use, but the lower level stuff should make sense for that layer of abstractions. So that's kind of what, that's kind of how I think about headless UI. Nice. And it's cool because, yeah, it's a, it works in any React app or any Vue app. So we've been using it on this new project, even though we're not using, uh, the Tailwind UI stuff or the, the style of the app looks very different. Um, so yeah, it's an, it's a super awesome library. I would use it even if I wasn't using Tailwind. If I was coming to a project and I was using something else and needed a modal dialogue, um, that's, uh, that's, that's how I would do it because, yeah, they've, it's just a nice API to work with. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's really cool. So something else I wanted to talk about on this project was the design side because we had basically full designs and, uh, and Figma for all of the breakpoints. And we've worked on projects with that before. But cool thing about this is we were working with the, the Tailwind team uh, and the folks who created Tailwind. And so there was a few tips we picked up with just working how to work uh, you know, as, a, as effectively as possible. Basically, yeah, how the creators of Tailwind think about Kind of uh, design dev handoff, you know, and, uh, well, even the handoff part is like, I've never super liked that. Even kind of going back to our conversation last week, there's always feedback that goes back and forth, and there's a lot of times you work together, but I think there's a few things we picked up from how Steve works in Figma, uh, to make it easy as possible for the developers, and, um, and then also kind of vice versa, how Adam or some of the other folks would look at the Figma and then bring it into the browser. So uh, I guess the first thing I remember was just how all of the values um, in the Figma file were effectively the same values in the Tailwind config. So I think they were working with the defaults, but this would apply even if you had customized your config. So Steve had uh, named actually uh, set up a, a custom color palette inside of the Figma file and uh name them there's a way you can name them in figma where you say like green slash 800 green slash 700 then when you go to choose them it kind of groups all of them together so if you were working on the design side in figma you could just go to choose a color and you're just choosing from the same colors that the developer has and i thought this was just like a really cool little example of you know it's always frustrating if i've been on the design side before you design something someone builds it and it's not quite right you have to go back and nitpick or show them or say hey this is off Um, and then on the developer side, like you want, you want to implement the design as close to, uh, the the mock-up as possible. But if it's really hard, it can be frustrating. You are like why the designer make this thing one pixels and this thing two pixels i just want to put padding of four around the whole thing like yeah. it's just you know and then you start to say, spacing
0: 17 pixels you always yeah exactly
1: and it was that intentional do i need to make it perfect like that or was that just because they moved it around and, and kept it in a certain way and uh i don't need to actually do that you want to make your code maintainable you have all those cross-cutting concerns so i think their process is cool because it's come out of you know their work on uh, first the refactoring UI stuff, which is kind of about design developers and thinking like, actually, you know, uh, when we do watch uh, designers work, a lot of times they are moving stuff around and a few pixels here or there is not, is uh it's, they're not, those choices aren't like we have to get those into the final form. Also, there's constraints and, and breakpoints and everything. So all that influenced the process. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but I found it like, when I went to build a page, not only were the colors pre-selected from Tailwind, even the spacing scale was. So I think Steve had updated his Figma defaults. When you nudge with like shift, it nudges by 10 pixels and um, Tailwind defaults to a four pixel spacing scale, which can be changed, but I would, most people use, I'm guessing use a default and they also have arguments as to why you should use a 4 point uh 4 pixel spacing scale on the website which is basically it divides evenly and it goes into 16 evenly as well which is the base font size so it kind of just works out for things like inputs and text and all it's just a it's a there's a reason it's a default it's like the best choice um or there's arguments as to why most of the time it's the best choice so i think steve makes his default nudge 4 pixels and so when he's spacing things out it's all divided by four and in figma you can just hold option mouse over an element and you can just see oh this is uh you know 12 pixels and 16 so i just go px4 py5 you know and i don't know about you but i hadn't really done that as much as i did until that project
0: oh my god that was a hundred percent and yeah it was like if my my the html page i'm building isn't pixel perfect i'm definitely like something's way off it's not like oh yeah that's like close enough. Uh it was like I'm zooming in, I'm measuring uh right. definitely using the um what do you call it when you hold option and see the lines in, Yeah in like in the
1: guides or whatever the, gu- the rulers. Okay, Yeah,
0: using those all the time. Yeah. Um you got really quick at doing the uh the divide by 4. Yes. Um <laughs> math.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, you could, I also use a lot like shift zero, put Figma in a hundred percent and then have it next to the screen and yes. it should look exactly the same, you yep. know? And, um, obviously the team, this team in particular cares a lot about polish. So you knew like they were going to want to see it. There's no reason for it not to be exactly the same. In fact, that's the fastest, easiest way to build it. So it should be exactly the same, you know? Dude, even like if you're a designer and you're like, why don't my developers ever
0: build things how I design them? Yeah. Like. This is a way that where I'm telling you, like if it didn't look exactly like the Figma file, like I knew I was doing something wrong. And so I would go out of my way to like seriously, like zoom in, like why? (laughs) Like even like the little, like the radius is off here. Right. Like rounded edges.
1: That was the other Um, thing. Shadows, radiuses were all bound to um, the tailwind uh, values, So you knew if it was rounded, small, rounded, medium, you didn't have to guess, you know, the shadows, everything like that. Um, I mean, it's almost like you, you just want to see the classes, like the class list right there and just grab them. Uh, but yeah, it's really, it's, it's really powerful. And I think it's kind of like, yeah, it's like a, it's almost like that, that abstraction point of the, the tailwind scale values is just so nice as a way for the designers and developers to talk to each other. You know, I don't know how those shadows are created with the five layers. I mean, I read about it once, but I, I'm not thinking about that when I'm, when I'm implementing the design, but now I can just see it look at the value in the sidebar and just and implement it like so easily so it's really powerful i mean it's really fast really powerful and like you said it benefits both sides of the part both parties you know it totally changes it like
0: flips a bit in your head where it's not this is good enough to you know it makes it like why isn't this perfect it's and almost how, like you have what a spec you file a that you're, yeah. you're
1: and you're fulfilling the spec file and then testing. Yeah. In the same way that it's like you know if this piece of code is working uh, because you've gotten all the tests passing. Now you know that this thing looks exactly the same, uh, and it's it's really cool. Yeah, um, yeah. So everything from the spacing values to the shadows to the radius. You know, I think this is if you do ever do design and you're listening to this. And you are working with tail. And I think it also works if you're working with other design systems. But the fact that you can name all those things and it forces you when you're as a designer to constrain yourself to those values, it's going to make everyone's life so much easier, you know?
0: Yep. I just, I just want to make this point again. Like if you don't have those constraints and you're designing and you have, you know, multiple frames in, um, artboards and Figma, um, what do you call them? Frames, right? Each page yep. would be a frame. And one, they both have like, let's say like they have a, a modal or an alert and they're two different heights or two different widths. The developer is just going to, yeah, the developer is just going to shrug and, you know, they're, they might ask you, but for but there's the most, a thousand most things part, like
1: that, that come up, they can't ask you every little question. Yeah.
0: So you're just going to shrug and pick the, the, the one that you as a developer think is right. But that, you know, we're not, we're not designers. I don't right. trust definitely don't trust my choice there so just just knowing that everything matches this tailwind file is it's so
1: powerful yeah no that's good um and and it's just pleasant and fun to see you know your implementation work look as good as the designers uh figma file does you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. um i guess the last thing we'll say about the design is is uh i think tailwind like 2.1 or point. Three or four, I don't remember. There was some minor release of Tailwind that had just happened, and they added support for like the backdrop filter stuff. And um, you know, seeing Steve work uh, w- was really cool because you know, there's times where that was one other thing I wanted to say was there was times where uh, instead of keeping it, the Figma file was great for ninety percent of the work. There were some times where, especially when it came to like designing all the different states hover say it's focused dates, which were all very intentional, partly because the project is a focus on accessibility, but also because it wanted the hero demos to look really polished. We would just jump on a call together and go through all those together. Um, and it was easier than doing it in Figma. And um, I just thought that was interesting. It's just really efficient, fast way to work if the designer and developer can just do that from time to time, you know? Yeah. Um and it also changes sometimes too, you know, just like we were talking about last week. Sometimes when you actually build it and use it, the designer says like, I actually want to see this work a little bit differently. Um, but yeah, back to the tailwind feature with the backdrop filters they had. We were trying to figure out how to do like the floating header treatment. We were trying to figure out how to do, there's a dropdown menu and then there's a mobile menu and the backdrop filters let you do this nice background opacity um, blur effect and uh, it's kind of like the ios frosted glass like when you if you pull down the control center on your phone it kind of blurs the background a little bit yeah it just looks like that frosted glass look and it turned out to be really easy so we use that a couple different point times so if you're looking for a cool effect that you can just have in your back pocket i definitely recommend checking out um i think if you just go to headless ui.dev uh you'll see it let's see where you see it right now um yeah, click on the first component and start scrolling the header on desktop. And, uh, let's see on mobile what happens. It's all, it's actually both. As you scroll, the contents are behind it, but it's, it's pretty cool when you see like the white headings behind it. And then if you pull down the react view drop down menu, you'll see the background is kind of this frosted glass look as well. So, um, yeah, you know, these icons, I mean, again, the design's just really cool. It's like this dark theme. So it's just fun to build. Um, there's lots of little cool details with the text. There's like a little shadow on the inset of the, of the code. Um, the typography is, is really well done. It uses the, uh, the Tailwind typography plugin, which is, um, you know, it's complicated styling arbitrary markdown, but it does a pretty dang good job. I mean, it's, it makes it look really good, especially out of the box, and, and you can tweak it. And uh, once you get it working, it's just great because it, it just makes every page look look really good um so yeah that was uh anything else anything else on the technical side that we want to talk about i mean we had oh yeah like, dude I've yeah got, dude i got have some list, stuff that's okay yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah um uh, there's a Next.js app which yes first time building a doc site in next i think uh a few times before we had used gatsby and so i guess like one thing is like i never I know in the past we've done episodes that like compare next to Gatsby, but I never realized like how much Gatsby is doing for you with its plugins. So when you're writing like Markdown or MDX or whatever, Gatsby has just a ton of plugins that they wrote. Um, things that do like source code highlighting and like source code highlighting is actually really, like it's really, really hard. It seems like it should be easy, but it's turns out it's really hard um yeah all this stuff all this stuff that uh gatsby gives you and so at one point i was like man like gatsby gives you so much stuff like should we just be using that because we're yeah, they, ha- are we they like have the reinventing whole the room
1: right they go have out, the whole content out. mesh thing so that the plugins have a way to communicate between each other whereas next doesn't really have that
0: notion yeah, I mean, not like just seriously, just like syntax highlighting. There's yeah. so much you have to know about. Yeah, you know, you don't want to do it on the client because it's really expensive. You want to keep it on the server. Um, the like whole like line highlights when you syntax highlight. That's like not actually like built into the syntax highlighter. That's like code that you write that injects HTML in there. So, you know, Gatsby's basically has written a plugin that gives you all that stuff for free. You can look right. at it like dan abramoff's blog and all that stuff he like the styling of his um his syntax highlighting all those line heights or sorry all those line highlights that's all stuff that like gatsby wrote that that you get so at one point i was like why not not i really like next and i'm gonna just kind of always default to using next um but at one point i was like wow did we like underestimate what what gatsby gives us out of the box I wouldn't want to switch to Gatsby. I think Gatsby has some some other problems, but, um, yeah, I uh, good you know just made me realize that. Yeah, it made me realize. I think in the past when when we had compared Next to Gatsby, I don't think I was considering all these things.
1: Right. Um, And we had a lot of code to crib from the TailwindCSS.com repo, and if we hadn't, it would have been a lot more work. Yeah. Oh yeah. So that's that. This is where. So Next just says like. They
0: have a Next MDX plugin. We're going to transform your MDX files into pages, and you can register Remark plugins. I think you can do like Rehype and Remark. Where we were just the team was just more familiar with Remark, and us having used neither before, uh, went with Remark. Right. Um, and so you you have to build up all of these things like table of contents, um, layouts, code highlighting, uh, but you actually really get. To like, once you learn the tools to do that, it's actually really easy. I don't want to say really easy, but it's really like, oh, I know exactly how to pull data out of an MDX file and transform it. So it, it was good. It was like really good to have that experience. You don't have to it.
1: learn all of like these kind of other APIs because you're just working with the NPM packages. You're not working with like Gatsby plugins that are wrapping the NPM packages. Ex- exactly.
0: There's like a super clean, handoff boundary between like, okay, I know what Next is responsible for, I know what MDX is responsible for, and I know what I'm responsible for. Mm-hmm. Where with with Gatsby, although they're giving you all that stuff for free, it's just I mean, just case in point, like before doing this project, I didn't realize what was like what Gatsby was doing, right? What MDX was doing. And it's all just kind of like this magical plug in layer. And I think you right. can make them, both of them you can make look good. I think, you know, like I said, Dan Abramoff's blog I think is great. Um, right. I think it looks beautiful. So it's, right. I don't think like technically one is better than the other. Um, I would prefer the next stuff just because of the clean boundaries, but right. yeah, I just right. wanted to mention that. Um, yep. Yep. and the remark stuff is awesome. I mean, we were, we got to do some really wild stuff like embed examples. So we could embed a view example into a react app and it would actually execute the view example.
1: Yeah. Yes, so So. this was going back to the spike that we did where we want to be able to write code examples in line in a markdown document with like GitHub-flavored markdown code fences, have tick-tick-tick view, and then have it render and uh, render the code example with syntax highlighting and also above it put the demo. So we had done something similar in Ember CLI add-on docs, which was nice. And that way you kind of know your code samples work. And uh you could even write tests against your docs to make sure if you're showing how to use transition that you it works and so it's kind of a nice way to keep that in check but um so that was pretty cool that we were able to do that
0: and we do that if you go to like the view docs and you interact with the demos that's all view code that's running mm-hmm. even so though it's just, a react app even though it's a react app and you as a developer you're just writing the view component and mm-hmm. then you're you're importing it into an MDX file and rendering it. So yeah, again, these MDX, are like yeah, yeah. These are the things that when you have to understand that boundary, like that, it's like you can kind of unlock these things. Right. Um, there's so much you can do here. Right. It's, it's it's awesome.
1: It is. It is cool. The MDX stuff is awesome. I mean, it continues to really impress me, and I really like working with it. Every time we work with it, yeah, lets you yep. make really nice APIs. We made. MDX components for these component API tables down here, where we document the props and the slot props for everything. Um, customize the styling there. That was another little trick we learned. If you do use the uh, tailwind typography plugin, um, sometimes you want to escape. So when we were writing the demos uh, and the demos were in line, we wanted style demos, but um, the styles from the markdown container were leaking in because it was a child of like your markdown wrapper. And there's no way to like escape parent styles in CSS or HTML or whatever. And so uh we picked up this trick from I think the Tailwind CSS repo, which is when you would render an MDX component, we used, what was it, remark to uh insert a closing div beforehand. Yep. So that it closed out the, 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 the block that had the markdown class, which is how the Tailwind typography plugin works. It just uses like descendant selectors within a markdown div to, to style everything. And um, then renders your component and then at, appends a new div with the markdown class at the end. So that's a really cool way to like pancake in some unstyled content that's not going to get affected by the markdown style. So that's another little cool tip.
0: Yeah, basically like close the parent div, insert yeah. a sibling, and then reopen the parent div. Right. It's awesome. I mean, it's right. just so so cool.
1: Pretty And it's not elegant it, way to solve the problem.
0: Yeah, and these once you're well, elegant, a, but
1: but like it's like it's it's uh it's practical and it works great, you know. Yeah.
0: Once you learn how to write like one or two of these, just that's it. like all the future ones will just flow. It's like you understand how to like what the tree that MDX is providing you with, how you can transform it, how you can, you know, inject your own JSX or, or HTML in there. So it's really, yeah, it's really awesome. Like getting, getting, getting practice with these is, is awesome. Pays dividends. Yep. I think so. I haven't been able to to capitalize on that yet. We <laughs> haven't done a doc site since, but so many ideas. Yeah.
1: I was just gonna pull up really quick headless u i dot c remark uh with pros with layout with examples with next links yeah with- yes yeah, so as another example we yeah you can go to uh uh the the remark plugins we ended up with in this project were um with pros, which is the typography stuff with layout with examples, which is what we were just talking about with next links. So that's another example of a remark plugin, just an idea where you could basically take any URL that is in a markdown link. So markdown does the square brackets and then the parentheses with a link, if the link starts with slash. So if if it's a relative link, you can replace the component that's rendering it with a next link so that it's a client rendered uh, client routing app as opposed to an a tag. Um, so again, just, you know, lots of examples, um, lots of ideas there you could do to improve this, the source of setup with, uh, with remark plugins. Mm-hmm. Cool. What's out? What else is on your list?
0: Uh, this was our first time using JIT in Tailwind, mm. which was, it's so funny because now I feel like I've been using JIT forever and I'm a master with JIT, but yeah. this, this <laughs> was the first project that we used it on and, uh, it's really good. Like it is an amazing experience. Um, so what JIT lets you do is it lets you write, you know, the Tailwind classes that you're used to, but instead of using their scale, you can, uh, provide an arbitrary value. And then that CSS will be basically that CSS class will be created on the fly and your, you know, HTML tag can, can use it. Um, so one area where this was really helpful was with, the grid stuff. We use a grid in a few places, uh, like on the homepage and those, uh, those grid boxes, they're just, you know, arbitrary pixels, uh, pixel values. And so there's no tailwind scale that they fit into, but just being able to have that, that escape hatch where I can say, okay, this is going to be, you know, a grid that, that has cells that are like 230 pixels and then 19 pixels and 230 pixels with like 1 pixel gaps. Uh it was it was awesome. Uh it was yeah. really really powerful.
1: And it works with the responsive prefixes and the um you know a- a- as well as all of the variants in Tailwind. So you made this grid like change on responsive breakpoints and all that stuff worked um with the jit jit uh enabled the jit mode enabled also uh we never had to configure variants in the tailwind config because when you have JIT mode that stuff just works automatically uh and the file size is is, i guess uh, you don't have to run purge css either so that's nice too because it saves that time in your build step and it's just fast as well so uh no reason not to use it at this point i think it's i think it's enabled by default by now but yeah it's true when when we were working on this it had kind of just come out and um was still was still getting established. So yeah, it's it's great.
0: Yeah, strong strong recommend
1: if you haven't used it. Um one thing I was thinking would be cool uh this is more on the intellisense side, but you know how you were saying you look at those pixel values in Figma cuz like really at the end of the day we're digital designers a lot of us thinking pixels. I mean, we're always thinking pixels. Tailwind scale has this scale between uh the the spacing scale in particular and the pixel value in the design uh because it constrains you but i was thinking it'd be cool how if you could do something like let's say have a button with like 14 pixels of uh, horizontal padding and 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 12 uh 16 pixel vertical pat horizontal padding and 12 pixel horizontal or vice versa whatever Anyways, you need 16 pixels. So you go in your head, 16 divided by four is four. So you do PX four. What if you could do PX tilde 16 pixels and then you just hit like tab or something and it just changes it to PX four. Oh, what if you could do like uh, PX dash like uh, tilde 15 pixels or like max width tilde 350 pixels and it just changes it to max width medium. That'd be pretty cool. It it like finds the closest, it finds the nearest value within the scale. Uh, so you don't have to do that translation there's this tool called tint that basically does something similar for color where if you're building something and you just want to stick with the tailwind defaults it can find the closest one but i was thinking why not with the rest of the values um and i guess that is more of a of a, an intellisense thing but it's it's that, a similar idea
0: it's so funny you say that because i'm working on uh i'm working with designs for a project right now that were not designed against tailwind that, mm-hmm. you know they just weren't no reason mm-hmm. why it should be um and so but i'm using tailwind to implement them and so what i do is i bring up the um is, is it headwind what is the thing that gives you like the the drop down that lets you select everything yeah i think
1: that's like there. the i think that's a, the the t- vs code tailwind intellisense plugin from from okay. the tailwind labs people i think headwind does this shuffling
0: the show okay so i bring up the intellisense plugin, yeah and then i i literally arrow through yeah, I find the one that's closest to the pixel. Like RGB
1: 109. Oh, that's the screen or whatever. Yeah.
0: There's some for like height and width where I'm like mm-hmm. finding the width and I know I need mm-hmm. to make it like. And, you know, the the designers that, we're, that I'm working with on this project, they're not pixel perfect. It's basically mm-hmm. in the spirit of this design. So I just mm-hmm. find the thing in Tailwind that's closest to it. Right. Um. So it's, um. yeah, I would love that. tilde Yeah. Because then I wouldn't have to do know, the translation through a list. Yeah. Yep.
1: Uh, anything else on the technical side here
0: uh i i just wanted to to you know just mention this pain that i felt with with svgs uh importing svgs is, oh yeah uh, you
1: you did something cool with this one
0: yeah so you you import an svg and you use it in like a nav so you have like you know whatever some icon and you're rendering it in a nav and you're using like uh react's um or Webpack's SVGR, which lets you turn an SVG file into a React component, so you can just import it and render it, and it it works perfectly. And then you go and you start to implement, you know, either your mobile or your desktop design, and you uh, use that same SVG in, like, let's say, the desktop version of the nav, and you do, um, you know, you hide the mobile nav. And so all of a sudden that SVG disappears from your desktop. That's so confusing. There's and no you're errors. Like, what is going on? Yeah, no yeah. errors. It just and sometimes it doesn't all
1: disappear. Sometimes the background disappears. disappears the color doesn't it, work. The gradient doesn't yeah. work.
0: And so what's what's happening is when you export an SVG, uh, they end up with IDs like literal like IDs in the SVG, and there'll be things like uh, gradient HTML attributes. The same yes. way you put an ID on an H1. Yep. And the reason they use those IDs is there will be, uh, things like gradients and filters that target them. So if you have a gradient, oftentimes that gradient will be expressed in like a definition with an ID and then the SVG will use that ID to, to get access to that gradient. And so when you've hidden your mobile nav, you've basically said that this, this, I, this ID is hidden. So it doesn't show up. Is, is that does that sound right?
1: It's, yeah, but it's still in the page. Well, like let's it's, say, yeah. It's so if still you the use page, like if you use block and then medium hidden, it's you, whether it's display none. I think it's display none, right? Um, but it's still in the page. Like if you view the source, it's still there. It's just not visible. It's uh, not visible with because CSS, it's, but it's still rendered in the page.
0: Right, but I think because it's not visible means the gradient doesn't show up because it's in a div. It's defined in a div that's now. Hitting. No, I think
1: the problem is you have the same. Um, you have like uh, an SVG that has like a path element, and then it has a defs element with like yep. filter id one, uh, or filter URL hashtag one, and it's pointing to the path element which has an id one, and then you render that again, and so actually you have two SVGs in the DOM at the same time two Two definitions sections with filters that all pointing to the same thing and dom is like all right well we're just going to put it to one which is like the first one it finds or whatever so then the second one just doesn't get it you know because you can't it's not leak. it's not valid to have two uh, elements with the same id but it just it doesn't break your app it just gracefully fails i think though it's because we should
0: test this but i think it's because i don't think it has anything to do with the
1: css visibility
0: Cause okay, I think, I, I
1: think even if you had, um, yeah, I, I think, well, we, we, we should test it. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent confident, but I'm pretty sure I've seen this before. Um, regardless, like you could just have two icons, the same icons, you know, uh, rendered twice and you could get, you could get things that mess up. Hmm. I thought I had to, do, okay. Okay. We got, we got to test I it. I could be wrong, but yeah anyways that that is the root of the problem is that the the things don't have like hashed ids They're they have the same ids it would be like an analogy would be like having a label in a form with like the four prop pointing to email and you have that in two places so then it's like what do i supposed to do when i click the label do i focus the first email input or the second one
0: yeah so one yeah just i mean it's it's really hard (laughs) yeah so, one solution here is like a lot of times when you like export these things from a design tool, the like ID will be like something like gradient one or like one. And so, um, one of the solutions here is that, and then all those, like if you have multiple gradients, they obviously all clash and now you don't even know which one you're getting because they're all clashing. Right. One of the solutions here is that, okay, when we're, when we come across an SVG, we're going to, find all its IDs and we're going to give it a unique ID um, that's based on the file name. So therefore, if you have two files and they both have like gradient one, well, by the time they get imported, go through Webpack and get rendered on your page, it's like one is, you know, uh, menu icon gradient one and the other is list box icon gradient one. Mm -hmm. So that solves two different SVGs clashing with each other. But now when you're Back to the other problem of when you're rendering the same SVG mm-hmm. in multiple parts of the page, and th- that same SVG is gonna have things that clash with it. Because mm-hmm. like, one is hidden, one is shown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you really need a way to give them two different IDs. Basically, right. every time you import an SVG, you, ne- you basically need the ID to be unique per import.
1: I think you'd really want it to be unique per render so you could import it once and yes. use it in multiple places because that's how like a lot of input components work where you render an input yes. it generates an ID per instance rendered and then does it. And I think you should be able to do that because SVGs are React components, right? Or React elements. Yeah.
0: So there are folks that recommend that. The the problem is it's like it's I mean it is, it's painful <laughs> because you Basically turn your SVG into a React component and there are Mm -hmm. tools out there that do that. They'll, Mm -hmm. you literally like paste in an SVG and it spits out a React component Mm -hmm. that you can copy. But then you've got to go through that React component, find all the IDs, you know, add a prop onto them and like, you know, with me i'm not like designing these svgs someone else yeah. is designing them in figma so i just want to copy them right out yeah. of yeah you
1: want no translation ma- manual translation from the source to when you render it in case there's an update or something like that yeah exactly yeah.
0: And, and i think people have different preferences here but that's that's my preference and mm-hmm. um the svgr stuff svgr webpack makes it really easy to basically just drop an svg and some, in some folder and, and just import it into and a use React it component.
1: so what did you do to solve this
0: yeah so i tried a, a whole bunch of stuff but <laughs> the thing i ended up with is a uh, webpack loader that basically you can add you can use query strings when you import something in webpack and so i have i should go look at the code for this but there's like a webpack loader where you apply a query string to the svg that you're importing and you can give that a unique name so if i'm importing an svg to use in the mobile nav i basically have a mobile nav component and then i'm importing menu icon uh from uh let's say you know icons menu.svg and then i'll do question mark mobile mm-hmm. and so and then that that string right there will end up in the id of the svg mm. um and then so if i have a desktop nav Nice. I have a different import and I'll do like question mark desktop or question mark one or no question mark because the mobile right. has a question mark covered. And, um, that, so gets, the import string ID. is
1: used as like a hash yeah. effectively. Yes. An identifier. Yep.
0: Identifier. Yeah. Nice. Yep. Um, man, that was <laughs> painful. I tried to do something where like <laughs> in the webpack build script, every time I encountered an SVG, yeah, I would basically increment a number by one. Yeah, and so I could use that to give every SVG unique ID. The only problem <laughs> is that my server renders were getting like one, two, and three. Oh yeah. And then my client and, renders are oh, getting yeah. four, five, six, and then I get and the they weren't matching,
1: order. so you get that error.
0: Yeah, your you know your initial render doesn't match the server, mm-hmm. and then there's a way where you you can like tease this apart, and you can like. Know when you're encountering a um, a server import versus oh client God. import,
1: and it just dude. It this gets, is like this, this is where the camera mont goes to a montage, and Ryan's sitting there at three thirty in the morning, in one arm, a cup of coffee in the other. And his eyes are like looking like insane. Yeah, that's
0: <laughs> exactly what it was. And then you're on, you're on dude. It's so bad, man. You're on GitHub. There's these issues. <laughs> there's these issues that are like you know they have like 400 replies you know when you're in a GitHub issue and you're scrolling <laughs> yeah. and, and then, then there's, there's like that all, little squiggly yeah, and it's yeah, a show show 199 H- hidden, hidden replies hidden comments and you're yeah. just like oh oh no
1: yeah and then you know you, I, have you made, had, I just hit at that point i just hit the end button and then it goes <laughs> bottom and it's like uh why is this three years later and it still hasn't yeah. been fixed i'm like oh god <laughs> um this That's is usually when like, I message you. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like Ryan. This would be a good one for you to take on. You want you want to work on this? <laughs> Dude, like
0: some of these maintainers are just they'll say like, you should tell your designers not to use gradients like this because it's a really bad practice. And I'm oh like, oh okay, gosh. okay. Let me let me go to Steve and yeah, tell him yeah, right, that, exactly. his, that he's not designing <laughs> stuff well.
1: Right, right so no yeah. that's crazy if anyone has good answers here i'd love to hear them because there's no way in hell you'll ever catch me writing a webpack loader to start to, <laughs> i would copy and paste the file first <laughs> and call it something else <laughs> i think i was doing
0: that at one point i had like icon two icon one yeah it's just dark
1: yeah 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 well i saw this funny tweet today it was like scar developer with one word <laughs> all start time zones <laughs> yeah you can you can just say svg that'll do it that's a scar right there yeah um cool well uh, why don't we wrap up speaking of twitter with uh some of our tweets of the week um and uh we just wanted to start talking about fun tweets we come across i thought these were pretty interesting you know we talk about testing a lot and uh, i happened to see both of these within like two days of each other so first was this great little thread from jeffrey way who is in the laravel community and does teaching on uh, Laracasts, casts and he said uh it's a testament to how poor a job testing evangelists have done that quote you should write tests unquote is still a debate the tests in this screenshot help me sleep better at night. Why on earth would I not want to write them? And he has a screenshot here of a Cypress uh, spec with like sign up, loads the sign up page, redirects authenticated users, displays an error if the card is declined, registers a user, you know, user stories, basically high level tests, the kind of stuff that we talk about a lot on this podcast and the kind of stuff that we write, uh, like what we're writing in our consulting project right now. He says, I think the problem is that so many people were introduced to testing through best practice isolated unit tests that were littered with mocks. They quickly found that it didn't fill them with any sense of confidence and abandoned them entirely. When the correct entry point, in my opinion, is let's automate the testing that you already do manually. Then once you're fully comfortable, you can drop down a few levels when you need to. So I just love that. Um... Whole right. phrasing, because that's, I think, how we think about tests. That's certainly how I think about it. And the most value I've gotten from, uh, from testing over the years has been that kind of thing. Um, you know, I've done some, Mirage has a lot of unit and lower level, not even unit, but maybe lower level tests uh, that are testing APIs that are not public. So they're not user stories from that sense, because the user story in Mirage's case is what the developers are doing with it. Um, but they were to help me because I encountered a point in let's say the ORM logic where it was so hard thinking about all the scenarios that I reached for the test as a tool to help me design and, and and code the logic correctly. And the test helped me do that and made sure that it didn't break in the future, uh, as I worked on it. So that's always how I've thought about testing. I never think about it as like an eat your broccoli thing. I always use it as a tool to help me. And um I always start at the highest level possible. So um, that's the first tweet. And then the second tweet is Gary Bernhardt, which says uh, React encourages app logic inside UI code, making app logic units difficult or impossible to exercise with no accessible logic. React devs redefined or rejected, quote, unit test. Then they rejected the testing pyramid based on that. But it's not about testing. It's about React um so that's interesting it's kind of coming out from an opposite angle almost and he's saying it's you know what the subtext here is like the testing pyramid is good unit testing is good and also he's picking on react here but the, the same was true of ember uh we you know i have it's a, things it's coupled it. it's any ui stuff um and uh you know we did the same kind of approach to testing in ember and um yeah you know i feel like the testing pyramid is something that i under i learned about early on but i always have been in the ui space for the most part and always kind of approached it outside in so um yeah what do you think about these two tweets they're good i mean the 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 jeffrey way one is is awesome
0: i mean there's like i i don't i don't even have to think about it i just as you're reading i'm just nodding along and smiling Mm -hmm. i mean it's 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 awesome i i yeah, I mean, you should. If your tests don't help you sleep better at night, that's a great little like nugget. Yes, um, the Gary one is interesting. I, I, I still don't know how I feel about that. Like, I've definitely worked in Rails apps where you have a bunch of models and they all have to interface with each other, and it's really good to write. You know, I'm just going to say unit tests, but mm-hmm. that low level, mm-hmm. yeah, unit tests where you're testing a specific method on uh one model and it gives you a lot of confidence when it works i've i've i kind of think like who's like the end user of this thing and for the uis it's like it's always a user it's always a user so i think it's right to reject the testing pyramid when you're working on uis I, i don't know i don't know what how gary would respond to that um the uh
1: yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think it also you know, I think part of this in the same way, you know, my experience with Mirage has a bunch of low level more unit tests around the ORM because that's the most complicated part of it. You can imagine a piece of software, uh you know, let's say like a budgeting software, which has a lot of pages, but then it has some really complicated stuff. And if people were just doing the high level tests to stress every possible uh case there you know that would be a pain in the butt and we wouldn't do that either or every possible error state of a form you wouldn't do everything but if the error states were complex enough that you wanted test coverage around them um you might drop down a level and uh write tests for those validations let's say there was some complex business logic
0: there it's so interesting because like if you think about a system where you do that you would probably move all that app logic out of the ui layer Right mm-hmm. So you'd have like a whole bunch of functions mm-hmm. or or classes that you right. create that can basically like let's go with accounting software they can like give you all your accounting numbers like in the sense like outside of UI right they're mm-hmm. like their interface the the API would just be a bunch of you know whatever JavaScript calls yep um so in that case,
1: you're like you're moving it out of the UI, which I think what Gary supports kind of Gary's up, point. yeah yeah. and he's saying he gary's saying
0: that you know if you don't move them out of the ui then like the ui is your interface right and so that's what you want to test and then the jump there is huge because you're going from javascript functions to all of a sudden you know typing in an input or clicking a button right um
1: yeah. I mean, I honestly don't feel like I have a huge pain point here. We've both, I know we've worked together on apps where we've done that, where we pull, we have a utils func- uh, folder that starts up and then it maybe becomes um, a folder for, you know, um, uh, more domain related things. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have like, let's say you had a budget and maybe, you know, in the Ember days, we'd make a class with methods and we would be able to new up a budget and calculate its balance or calculate if it is, Uh, complete or whatever and we have tests covering just the business logic of some complex object in the system and then you inject it or whatever and the ui ends up being something that you don't have a ton of uh, edge cases that you're testing because it's really just a more of a dumb presenter of the business argument of the logic but um i think to embrace that completely and um say that we should do that all the time gets rid of a lot of the benefits of this stuff also you eventually do have logic in the ui if you don't at all then it's like you're kind of kidding yourself because you're going to be doing some sort of transforms in the ui at some point so this is a thing like the rails the rails architecture if you're following like rails best
0: practices you have experience with rails you're nudged towards writing business logic code that can be invoked from anywhere it can be invoked from the console it can be invoked from a controller now they're not They're not nudging you towards this because you would invoke it from both places, but that is the MVC, um, paradigm pushes more business logic into the model has nothing to do with presentation and basically can be invoked from anywhere. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of good things that come out of this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's really uh, conducive to unit testing. Mm -hmm. Um, the react model is like, look, we need to be reactive. Like Mm -hmm. we need to be reactive. We need to re render. Mm -hmm. And in that case, your push towards writing logic inside of react components and that's, that's interesting i was
1: i was almost thinking that like i totally get your point and and the way you phrased it makes it seem like they're at, at odds with each other or kind of different sides of the spectrum i was almost thinking of what if you took uh gary's perspective to the logical conclusion and you pulled out all of your business logic into kind of isolated uh, testable units that had nothing to do no knowledge of how they were being presented right that's the idea that they don't have any uh, coupling directly to the ui no, but th- that would but be th- the equivalent of the rails uh service oriented stuff which is what people the same arguments people were making there which is like even though you're encouraged to have fat models and rails um it's still coupled to your application it knows it's part of a request response life cycle so in that sense it is coupled to the the display i know it's Decoupled from the the view, uh, which makes it u- usable it's outside model, of it. But it's coupled, it is coupled de- to your Rails app location. Whereas if you go with the extreme nth degree of this, like this, not the service oriented. Sorry, that's the wrong word. The uh, hexagonal architecture. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. saying almost what he's saying, which is your budget or your budget class you shouldn't even know it's part of a Rails app, and uh, that <laughs> they way it shouldn't the, even know it has a
0: database. I mean, it's yeah, ridiculous. Right. I mean, yeah.
1: But that is the, that's like, that does make it more testable. Um, but it also, uh, by removing the coupling, puts more burden on you when you do integrate it back together. So there's a spectrum here, right? There's a spectrum here, which is, which is how I feel about it. Um, which is why I actually don't take a dogmatic, uh, perspective. And I think to start, if you want to counter in a UI, and you want to increase it when you click it. The first thing you should do is write that in the. Like the simplest way to do that is to couple all of it together because it is coupled at that point. And um, let's it doesn't let's bother use, me. Let's use
0: something though that has to be reactive. Like let's use like you're reacting to time or you're reacting to mouse movement. Like that is stuff that like you want that in React because that's the stuff that React is really really good at. Like it's re- you want a component that's gonna like use mouse position or something like that. You yeah. don't want to extract that out into yeah. another thing. Cause then, yeah. Like,
1: What's the point? Why are you even using it to begin with? Yeah.
0: I, I also think it's like, I don't know, like if we view react as like a programming language, which I don't know if we're supposed to, but like, what, what do we end up just reinventing all the reactive stuff outside of react? What's the point? right. Right. So yeah, I think that's, I'm just thinking of, like, what I've noticed when testing Rails apps versus testing React apps, and that's that's a big thing where, like, the React app needs to be reactive, needs Mm -hmm. to change as a user interacts with it, Um, and that's stuff that I want React to handle. I don't want to,
1: yeah. Yeah, Interesting. Well, maybe we'll have more to say about it next week. We were saving this for the end here and I, I got to run, but uh, of course, we should know better than to uh, start we're a conversation about, about this. T- yeah, week. testing and testing. And I think we're going to just have five minutes worth of stuff to say. And we could sit here, I think, for the next two hours and talk about this. But this is really interesting. So, um, uh, yeah, we'll make sure to link these in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed some of those details about Headless UI. It's an awesome project, even if you don't use uh, tailwind at all, or you don't use tailwind UI at all. I really recommend checking it out. It's really, it's maintained by their team, which is a company as well. So that's something I really like about it. um, Because it's, you know, has that staying power. And uh, yeah, if you have anything to say about the site, let us know. Otherwise, thanks for listening. And I hope y'all are having a great week and uh, we'll see you next week. See ya. Bye.